What, in addition to the right equipment, does it take for the job of film editing? Hi, welcome to The Cutting Room. I'm your host, Gordon Burkell. This week I interview Andrew Weisblum, editor of such films as The Wrestler, Fantastic Mr. Fox, and the recent Black Swan, which just screened at the Toronto International Film Festival. This is the first part of a three-part interview. In this part, we discuss Fantastic Mr. Fox. Before we get into the interview, for those who want more than just editing talk, you should check out my friend and fellow editors, James the Giant Squid Villeneuve's Movie Morons podcast where he and his colleagues discuss classic films, current films, and cult films. For good laughs and intelligent discussions, this is the place to go. Check it out at moviemorons.com. I'd also like to send a thank you to the Final Cut Pro Talent Registry for mentioning our current Editing Association video series. The FCP Talent Registry is a place where you can connect editors with producers. You can check that out at fcptalent.com. Now back to the show. Andrew and I sat down in my temporary apartment in New York while we were attending EditFest. So I guess the first question will be, how did you get into film editing? Um, well, I, uh, I was always a film fanatic growing up mm-hmm. in New York, and um, I knew I wanted to do something in film, wasn't entirely sure uh, what it would be, but I would make short films and stuff along the way in high school and college and what have you and the part that was always kind of the most exciting creatively was the editing process and also I, I kind of learned for me was the most important part to look at and, and where you could really solve the problems and figure it out and learn from your mistakes. Um, I worked as a PA a little bit and kind of felt that the uh, on-set experience unless you were one of five or six people intimately involved mm-hmm. in what was going on in front of the camera was ultimately not that creative. I felt very distant from it. And I knew that I liked editing, so that's just what I went for after that. And I got um, an internship on a, on a film, a low-budget New York film in the early 90s. And I was with an editor named Bill Panko. And he gave me a lot of opportunities, hired me as an assistant on his next film. And then from there, I worked as an assistant for well over 10 years in, in New York um, on all different size films, big films, tiny films, and all their different challenges, different opportunities. And then I slowly got opportunities to start cutting. When you're working on a project and a particular scene or a particular cut isn't working, and you might have to remove the scene or remove the cut, how do you approach that subject with the director? Usually as directly as possible, you know, it's there's never usually any point in try to, trying to over-politic or skirt around what you see as a problem, but it's also about timing and opportunity and waiting to see when the best timing for that presents itself. I'm usually what's fairest to the filmmaker, to the director, because it's their, it's their film and there's really no ever any debating that. Mm-hmm. In assembling the footage at first, usually without their direct input. My goal is to try and get as close to what I understand is their vision for the movie based on how they shot it and how they wrote it. And generally that doesn't mean cutting out or revising their notions. I'm trying to give the, their ideas the fairest shake that it can get. Even if I can tell right away that it's not a it's maybe not the best thing or there's a moment that's standing in the way. And if I know that, then usually once I've given that its full attention and its fair shake and tried its hardest, I'll usually prepare some kind of alternate 
if time permits and put that aside and when we look at the film together or the scene together and they say that doesn't work they'll either say that doesn't work what should we try or they'll say that doesn't work let's try this and then I'll explore that stuff and I'll also say okay I also ha I didn't think it worked either but I have this other idea and present it then but it's I don't think it's ever fair to present to a director that something they've conceived is not right mm -hmm. until you've kind of explored it first. I'll jump to Fantastic Mr. Fox. All right. Now, you had, had you ever cut an animation before that? Not at all. So when you approached cutting this film, what did you have to learn? What were drastically different from live, live action? Well, this, the, the, whole, the whole mental process I found of, of approaching an, an animation film. I can't, I can't speak about all animation. Stop motion, I think, is a pretty specific discipline. Uh, there are specific challenges because you're dealing with physical objects and you're dealing with it having to actually be shot instead of redrawn and redrawn or re reanimated over and over again. There are a lot of decisions that go into that. So um, the process compared to live action was pretty different. You know, my process with live action is you always want to look at the dailies and and vibe off of it a little bit or, or see be open to what surprises you about it in terms of performance or whatever developed in the direction on the set, what technical challenges there were in shooting it and how you're going to try and either rewrite or rethink the scene around that. And stop motion is none of that. Your production and post-production are running side by side the whole time. And your the opportunities in terms of rewriting the scene or rethinking the scene don't ever really stop mm -hmm. as you're going. It's just little portions of the movie kind of lock themselves into place as you go and you have to kind of reconceive around them based on what is or isn't working the way you anticipated based on how you talked about it or what you thought a line was going to be or a shot was going to be or whether that was going to be a joke or not and then maybe it doesn't play as a joke so then how do you adjust the shots that haven't been done yet in the scene to work with that or how do you use the shot you now have differently and that is it's great that you can constantly reconceive the scenes and reconceive the footage as you go mm -hmm. i mean we reboarded scenes sometimes 30 40 times wow. even as we were shooting them just like one thing i could think of is the fight with rat just kept on changing its context and what it mean meant and whether there were jokes in there or not jokes in there or whether it was too violent or not or, and that wasn't really a studio thing, it was just about what's the vibe of what's happening and what's the point and what's Mrs. Fox's role, what's Mr. Fox's role, what happens to Ash, what happens, mm -hmm. what does the rat do, do we make it more of a joke, do we mm -hmm. make it more scary, what do we need to have happen. That constantly got reconceived as we were shooting. So did you play a bigger role in writing or helping? Sure, I mean, because... I was working very closely with Wes in Paris while, and, and his producer, Jeremy Dawson, and the three of us mostly, with other people collaborating mm -hmm. as well, Mark Gustafson, the, the animation director and others, would constantly redraw and with the storyboard artist and revise what the intentions were and, and rewrite. And it was a rewriting process where we added in a whole narrator, took out a whole narrator, rewrote a whole act of the movie just mm -hmm. in terms of what was going to happen. Re completely reconceived the ending a few times. Not because there were even huge problems with it or because we ended up somewhere that was radically different from mm -hmm. where we started, but we really explored every option we could. And there were lots of different ideas that Wes wanted to have in the movie. And then if, 
if one wasn't working in one spot, we could see how we can fit it in another way. It wasn't a rewriting process mm -hmm. the way that editing usually is. It's, it's a writing process alongside of the production as you go. It differs a lot from the book. So there's actually characters removed. Absolutely. Totally new characters, yeah. totally new ideas. That wasn't ever really an obstacle or a problem. That was Wes's thinking of that is how would Roald Dahl approach mm -hmm. this idea? How would he do it differently? Yeah. How He always kind of was conscious of whether something was in that was in the appropriate spirit, mm -hmm. even if it had certain colloquialisms or whatever or other things that he was referencing. It was a, he felt it was contained within the spirit of the idea of the story or the themes of the book or other Roald Dahl themes. There were other Roald Dahl ideas that found their way into it that weren't part of Mr. Fox. Found their way in, found their way out. He would constantly refer back to not just that book, but other. Yeah, there was other characters pulled in from other books. Ex exactly, that it was just this, this world all world and, and how to reflect that constantly without yeah. being too blunt about mm -hmm. it. Now originally they did some tests with British actors. Were you in at that stage? Or well, was it... the, the voices I think were always, of the animals, were, were always American. Okay. I think it was, it was pretty early on that he he developed the notion that the animals had American accents. Mm -hmm. And, I, you know, who knows what fueled that. I mean, I think, I think it could be financial, it could be other things. Mm -hmm. But it, he always felt that that would be the case. That when he, when he decided he wanted George Clooney, that that fell into place, that they shouldn't all be British except for Mr. Fox. Mm -hmm. Didn't make any sense, that it's kind of its own world. And it seemed logical to divide the worlds up where the, the animals were American and, mm -hmm. the, and the, the people were not that have put a divide between them. There were different actors who voiced different characters along the way, and we changed them for different reasons. The, in the original recordings in, that were done in Connecticut uh, that I was present for, with uh, George Clooney was there and Wally Wolodarski, and mostly just friends. Mm -hmm. Eric, who's Wes's brother, was there, and he all just kind of threw us in. I was taking a lot of notes and doing a lot of recording, but he threw everybody in who were just friends that he could get together at this house to record different characters, just mm -hmm. different voices. Bill Murray was there and he voiced three different characters. It yeah. was, I forget who he did, if it was Rat or Badger or who, which ones he was doing at the time. But some of those was kind of, they grew on him and they stuck and they became the voice and there really wasn't any change. And then there are others that just kind of went by the wayside. We kind of knew that we didn't want to use one person for more than one voice, but there were some choices there. And then we had different actors recording different characters along the way, and, and that just kept changing a little bit, just to vary it up. Because sometimes when we bring somebody in to record, we'd have them record one more than one person. Now you guys did this on a farm, on an actual... Yeah, the initial recordings were done on a farm in Connecticut. Okay, so they didn't use those initial recordings? No, yes, yes. Most of the, the bulk of the movie, apart from things that got rewritten mm -hmm. or revoiced along the way, because it wasn't an actor who was doing it or what have you, West did several voices at the time, and you know we, we knew he wasn't going to be everybody, so we had to replace them. Those weren't recorded on the same farm, but sometimes they would be recorded live too, yeah. not on a not on a soundstage. But there was a farm in a field, basically, that we went to in Italy and then in France too. So so it was we're trying to do it in live environments. But the bulk of the 
recordings for the film were done on this farm location. Apart from that, any, any other script changes or additions that we did that weren't done there, we really only went there once for one set period mm -hmm. for three or four days at the beginning to start the whole thing off. Now, you were there for the recording? Yeah. Were you, because most editors, or a lot of editors, not most, but a lot of editors don't like to be on set. So were you worried about that influencing your cut? Not in that case. I mean, it's yeah. so, the vocal recordings of an animation project are so wildly removed from what <laughs> what ends what you end up with in the end. I mean, it's such a, it's such an, so aggressively edited that mm -hmm. it doesn't really mean anything. It's just, it's, I was just there because I was available to be there and I could, I knew the script and could help Wes with ideas and that this seemed the right thing to do. Now there's a lot of, I don't want to say stylistic edits, but very well thought out edits in the sense of a lot of scenes you rely heavily on like a wide shot or you rely heavily on the camera move into the scene. Right. Um, was this something that you worked with Wes to come up with or how did that sort of evolve in the story? Well, one way that I, I don't know who who picked up on it or who didn't, sounds like you did a little bit, but, but, <laughs> um, but one thing that was very true with, with Wes's live action style, which kind of evolved on Darjeeling, was that a lot of times, he, one of the things that he's brilliant at as a director is blocking and taking a scene that's effectively one shot and blocking it in an almost an editorial way so that the camera moves are almost cuts. Um, where you have these switch pans or moves that mean something and a, and a scene that would normally be constructed of coverage is basically the rhythm of it is boiled down on a set and you could have 35 takes of it until you got the rhythm just right. Then of course we would take those takes and cut them to death you know later on every time there was a move or a switch or a camera pass or any way either with a visual effect or something to hide a cut from one take or the other pretty much you can assume there's a cut there mm -hmm. and that and that we would find ways to bridge 10 takes together in one long shot because the, he liked this one moment that much better and this thing or that thing. That was an approach that he took to a lot of scenes in Mr. Fox. Why cut or construct a new shot when you don't have to? A lot of times because you can in an animation, everything is its own little shot, its own mm -hmm. little moment. and. If it was live action, it would probably feel overcut. So when you thought about a scene, if it was a bunch of actors in a room, what would be his live action approach to it? And that there's a certain kind of, it's not realism, but a certain yeah. kind of spontaneity to it and body language and energy that comes out of it in the space and just seeing these characters in the space. Seeing, there are scenes where, they're, where they go and they see the tree for the first time. Mm -hmm. It's kind of blocked out that way. And the scene with breakfast, he doesn't want to live in a hole anymore. That those yeah. are all blocked out in a way that he would have probably done it on a set. And he thought about it very specifically in that context. The scene with the, with Ash and Christopherson and the train and the way that's blocked out and he's nasty, Ash is nasty to him and then he comes down and he turns on the train. And yeah. it's all just about the frame and how yeah. that, how they play. And I think it wouldn't be wrong, but other filmmakers would do that in coverage. They do the close-up of Ash being nasty to Christopherson and Christopherson crying and then a close-up of Ash realizing that he's been mean and reconsidering and coming down, you know, and playing those beats out instead of the, the, the energy of the room. Yeah. So it was a struggle to try and catch some of that stuff with a bunch of puppets. But, and it was also editorial where we would yeah. split things up and 
adjust that timing when it didn't quite work. Well, you can see a lot, and I guess this is because of the animation, but George Clooney's voice mm -hmm. with that box, the way they animated it worked. Yeah. It was almost like watching him. Like I could, I felt like he was in that role. Absolutely. But there's a, there's a third component of it, which is that Mr. Fox was probably animated by 12 different animators, depending on who did what shot. And each animator is a little bit different and has a different impression of what Clooney's performance yeah. is and what it means and what the shot's supposed to be about and how energized or animated Mr. Fox is at any given moment. And trying to keep that in line was always a neat challenge because you wanted people's... Yeah. What's exciting with these animators and their talents is that they they infuse what they sense as reality into these puppets, you know, without it being too cartoonish and making it feel alive and still having... Uh, a performance there mm -hmm. and then and then the the other element of it is is Wes would usually act out every puppet for every shot like physically get up physically do it to the track not as a bible that they had to match but mm -hmm. so that it was just a communication tool okay. you know so that it, if there was a gesture that he knew that he wanted to it to find its way in there he could act that out and do it even if he wasn't mm -hmm. thinking about it consciously it's what he had in his head of how to emphasize something or how the puppet's body language would relate to each other or what they would do. And that was a whole separate editorial level mm -hmm. that, uh, that I would work on with the other associates of mine, just taking Wes's performance yeah. of each character, laying it on the storyboards and timing it out the way that Wes saw it. And then that would be a reference for the animator all the time. It wasn't just words, you know, it was, it was talking about, it, it, it would illustrate very clearly what he wanted how he wanted the puppets to relate to each other. And then there was the other layer of what the animators would bring to it. It sounds like a truly collaborative process. Yeah, well, like it, re it really is. It's interesting because it, it, in some corners of the, of the press on the film, it was painted as the exact opposite. And it really wasn't. It wasn't a dictated process. It was a very collaborative process yeah. with all these people. You couldn't help but have all these people contribute all these mm -hmm. things along the way which is part of what made it spontaneous and interesting and exciting and kind of different. Well, that was part one of my interview with Andrew. Please join me next week for part two. I'd like to thank Andrew, the Manhattan Edit Workshop, Jenny McCormick, and of course my producer, Lauren Woodcock. I'm Gordon Burkell. Thanks for listening.